and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Sydney Toll, and I'm a 22 here at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Professor Devin Singh, an associate professor of religion at Dartmouth, who is currently a visiting scholar at Princeton University's Center for the Study of Religion. Professor Singh, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, Yesterday, you gave a lecture entitled, Should We Cancel Debt? Insights from the Ancient World. I was hoping you could give our listeners a brief synopsis um, and how you became passionate about this particular topic. Sure. So yesterday, I spoke a bit about my ongoing research for my second book project, which is on debt, the topic of debt and indebtedness, and its connection to religion and various ethical and moral ideas around lending. And part of my interest is in the ways that religious ideas have intermingled and connected with economic ideas in the long history of the West. And so I draw on some of the uh, ancient Near East as well as uh, the times of late antiquity, so before the Common Era, but also in the early centuries of the Common Era, but then think about how some of the ideas and practices and institutions that emerged there may have influenced and shaped the the ways that our society has developed um, over the centuries. So I'm interested in in our contemporary moment in terms of our concerns about debt and indebtedness and how debt is putting a strain on individuals as well as on societies. But I'm interested in drawing a long view um, from ancient history to think about how some of those insights can can give us perspective on uh, what's happening what, what's happening in the present. And so yesterday I, I gave a snapshot from one sort of area of this and thinking about the topic of debt cancellation. Um, as some of our listeners may may know, debt cancellation is a topic that has been talked about in particularly in our current economic crisis as well as previous economic crises. But it's a theme that's come up over the the years as well as over the centuries in the West, going back to. Uh, periods even in the ancient Near East, so and I'm talking about in the um, the f- second and first millennium before the Common Era, so let's say f- in 1500 BCE, and even earlier, there was language about debt cancellation that took place, um, or at least was, was uh, set up as an ideal that economies should follow under the governance of, of emperors. So there's a long history of thought and reflection about this, and so it influences how people have talked about Uh, whether debt cancellation is a moral obligation or not, partly because these ideas were also incorporated into sacred scriptures, most notably uh, the Hebrew Bible, as well as inherited by the Christian New Testament and its discussions of the morality around debt and lending, as well as in Islam. So these various religious traditions have a lot to say about debt and lending and what it means to be bound by these kinds of obligations, whether they're moral or not. And that's also shaped our conversation around uh, the ethics of lending. So I looked at a few snapshots from a different, a few different angles. Yesterday, I, I talked about some of the archaeological considerations in terms of how we understand where debt came from, how it emerged in the ancient world, how it's connected to the rise of early states and early complex civilizations. I also looked at some anthropological considerations, how debt is different than, for example, gift exchange, how when we exchange gifts with each other, we sometimes impose obligations on each other to reciprocate those gifts. But debt seems to be a more explicit relationship where those kinds of obligations to return are are clearly stated and we, we set the terms um, of, of interest or repayment. I also looked at some political theoretical considerations and in particular 
this notion that debt cancellation was often a mandate that was expected of new emperors, that when they came to the throne, that they would actually reset the economy and declare all debts canceled, or certain debts at least canceled. So there's an interesting connection between debt cancellation and the supremacy and authority of the emperor, or perhaps even the modern nation state. And finally, I considered a bit about religious and philosophical language that uses debt language to speak about things like moral guilt and sin. There's an interesting history of how certain scriptures, particularly, again, thinking about the Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament, use debt as a placeholder for sin. And so what is that? What are the implications of that if we have been linking indebtedness with a kind of... Um, uh, moral position that we would describe as being guilty or being in sin, what is that also meant for the ways that we think about debt since it's been associated with these these perhaps undesirable moral uh, conditions. So there's a lot of different factors that shape how we how we think about debt and indebtedness. And so the, the, the overall kind of takeaway from the presentation yesterday and, and one of the my convictions in my work is that we benefit from considering other historical contexts and certainly other cultural contexts to give us a little bit of distance on our own situation and to understand perhaps where some of the uh, factors that we're dealing with have come from and also to give us a way to think about them in, in alternative ways and to perhaps give us new insights and new perspectives to sort of uh, give us a paradigm shift and hopefully be able to approach these issues with fresh perspectives and with more um, informed policy responses. Great. Thank you for that. And so you began your lecture with a couple of polls to ask our audience, um, you know, regarding their opinions on uh, either consumer or student debt. And I was just wondering, why do you think it is that people are so divided over these issues? And do you think that there's a significant moral component to how people make these decisions? Yeah, it was really fun and interesting to run those polls. I mean, partly it was a way to gauge where the audience was and also to, to pick up on uh, the moral kinds of baggage that people attach. And so, you know, for the listeners who are listening now who didn't see the results, you know, the, the first question I asked was just basically polling the audience to ask um, whether they're in favor of some kind of debt cancellation in society. And the majority were in favor. It was about 70% that were in favor, 30% that were against. Then I asked two other questions to get more specific. And I asked the question, are you in favor of canceling some or even all student debt? And as one might predict, there was a similar response. About 70% were in favor of this, 30% not. Then I asked, are you in favor of canceling some or all consumer debt, credit cards, mortgages, et cetera? And this was much more divided. I think it was, it was, it might have been something like 30% in favor and 70% against, or maybe 40, 60. So the majority were against this. So it's interesting that when we switch the terms, even though it's still, we're still talking about debt, we're still talking about people being in debt and in, in, in negative situations where their lifestyles are perhaps constrained or they're experiencing financial precarity or vulnerability, that if people inquire into the ways in which folks got into debt, then that, that conditions their response in terms of whether they think that that debt cancellation should be moral. So we're making moral judgments and moral valuations all the time about what we think of as good debt, bad debt, legitimate debt, Ill illegitimate debt. And I would suspect that, that one might argue that, you know, the consumer debt is somehow uh, reflective of our, our desires and tastes and perhaps la lack of uh, self-control when it comes to, comes to consumption. Um, and, I, and I don't think those are clear-cut uh, cases to make, but I do think that's a common uh, conception. 
And so people might might render judgment there and say, well, those are not legitimate kinds of debt. You shouldn't be going into debt for those kinds of things. Therefore, it shouldn't be uh, canceled. Whereas something like student loan debt, where education is seen as a, a public good, might be something that people would want to support. So again, I, I ask those things just to show and, to, and to, to clue us into the fact that we're making moral judgments about debt all the time, and that debt is a, is a fundamentally moral category. Um, and what I mean by this is that often, um, you know, people, particularly in, in economic discussions, will want to talk about debt in a neutral terms, that it's just simply about uh, certain terms of exchange, or even about, you know, like some sort of algorithm where we can calculate the rate of return or interest or something. And it, and it makes it seem like it's just a, a neutral category. But Debt and the terms of debt are ways that we speak to each other about how to behave in relationships with each other. How do we treat one another in relationships? And in this case, in terms of a kind of exchange and obligation. So it's fundamentally moral. I mean, it's hard to imagine getting more moral than that. It's about how we treat one another in our exchanges. And so debt, uh, the, the broader takeaway is that debt itself is is tied up completely with questions of morality and ethics. Yeah, thank you. Um, and you discussed, you know, four kind of angles from which to view, um, like the history of debt, and you discussed the archaeological, anthropological, political, and the religious, ethical, and philosophical um, components. And so I was just wondering, um, have you considered other angles, or are these like four set categories that you think kind of broadly define um, how debt has um, kind of constituted um, become like associated with morality? I think there are probably a number of other angles one could consider. Um, these are ones that have been particularly interesting for me and that I've gravitated towards and, and have shed light on, on the, the situation. Um, I'm sure that one could make a case for other kinds of angles. Um, you know, some, some are arguing and looking at, at evolutionary biology and, uh, the, the, the sort of shift from, uh, primate life to early human communities and the kinds of evidence that we have or don't have for the bonds of reciprocity and exchange that early early human communities engaged in and whether, um, for instance, humans are somehow fundamentally cooperative, a cooperative species. And under this, this new sort of past 5,000 years of, of debt, we have somehow gotten away from that and become more of a competitive and exploitative species. So there, that's an example of another sort of set of uh, investigations that people will make. One angle that I'm also looking at that interests me is, is from the, just the linguistic angle, the, the ways that we speak about debt. One of my suspicions is that part of why debt might have so much power and claim in our lives and in society is that we often speak loosely about the kinds of bonds and obligations that we have with one another and maybe use the term debt and terms like it when we mean something else. And so what I mean by this is that sometimes we might say to a friend or a family member, well, I'm in your debt when we when we mean something like you know we feel a sense of obligation to them or we feel like we we owe them in a vague sense but i i would submit that when we use the term debt we are speaking about an, an economic relationship where we intend to somehow pay that off or at least where it, it could be paid off um but these other kinds of relationships like when a child feels a sense of of obligation to one's parents or or societies sometimes speak speak about their their debts they owe to their ancestors or founding figures, that it's not really debt that they're talking about. It's a, a different kind of obligation, whether it's loyalty or fealty or some other kind of bond. And so I think we do ourselves a disservice when we use debt and other kinds of economic language to mark a different set of relationships. Um, because again, it kind of narrows the terms, it, it influences our 
imaginations around what those relationships involve. And so I'm, I'm hoping to, to get us to sort of expand and re-expand and, and reinvigorate our vocabulary to speak about different kinds of obligations um, and, to, and to keep debt in its place to, to really mark these, these more narrow notions of, of economic transactions. Yeah. And you mentioned yesterday that um, with the introduction of like agriculture and surplus production, we kind of moved to this culture of debt. And I was wondering, do you think that it's inherent that with the cultivation of civilization that we create debt? Or do you think that there was a possibility of not creating debt when also creating civilization? Yeah, it's a wonderful and really important question. Um, I don't think it needs to be intrinsic. The fact that that we moved to agriculture and to the, the, the discovering ways to create surpluses for populations uh, absolutely doesn't, I don't think, need to lead to a situation where a small minority control access to that surplus and then uh, create debt kinds of instruments in terms of loaning that out to the population that they're governing or controlling. So that's, that's an unfortunate twist in, in history that, that seems to have become the norm. And part of that relates to, as I, as I also explored in the, in the talk yesterday, how labor was motivated that in the ancient world, uh, one of the ways that these emerging um, controlling centers and city-states uh, were able to motivate p- humans to labor was to entrap them in debt relationships. So debt became very useful as a, as a motivational tool to to obligate certain people to labor on behalf of, of elites. Um, and, and that was partly a way to manipulate these agricultural developments and, and grain surpluses in particular. But to your question, I, I don't think it, that needs to be intrinsic to the case. I mean, one can imagine a scenario where we learn to create surpluses that are then shared equally and distributed among the community, that there isn't a need to hoard and, and uh, keep those limited to a certain few. Um, and I would imagine there were examples of that, uh, perhaps some that are lost to history, but of communities that learned to cultivate and create uh, more efficient ways of, of getting resources. And then that was shared and distributed among the community. But unfortunately, the ones that were able to grow and, and um, exert dominance were the ones that were able to create um, armies and, and to subjugate others and to uh, entrap neighboring populations to become more indebted or slave labor. And that was kind of the course that history took. So uh, it's an important question that you ask, I think, for us to think about and imagine other ways of allocating resources and surpluses. Uh, but it is important to, to note the way that history, the course that history has taken and to acknowledge that and to, and to try to find ways to, to perhaps undo that uh, to the extent that it's leading to certain kinds of injustices and inequalities. Yeah. And then that kind of leads into my next question. Um, do you do you see a feasible way to remove debt currently on like a global scale? And what would that look like? To remove debt completely would, would involve some sort of radical, dramatic reboot and reconfiguration of the economy. Um, because the way that the way that things are structured now that deal with, with, uh, the creation of scarcity and the allocation of resources in ways that that not all have equal access to. And so that creates inequalities. And then debt is one way that kind of comes into to manage those inequalities. So debt doesn't make sense in a world where where everyone has equal access and resources. You know, debt emerges in a world where some have more than others. And those others that are lacking need to go to those who have who have more and ask for help. Those that have more can then decide to, to give freely as a gift or, or to give a donation or to create a kind of 
agreement where they will give and then and then require that person to pay them back, right? And so that's how, or one one way we can imagine debts emerging, but it requires a kind of inequality. So there's a lot that needs to be, I think, restructured in the, in the economy. And I mean, the, the, the short answer is that it's, it's very hard to imagine. I mean, there's so much that we've uh, created in terms of our financial instruments, our ways of thinking about economics, our ways of structuring political arrangements that rely on debt. Uh, the modern nation state emerged uh, as, a, as a debt-funded regime that uh, uh, monarchs and then eventually uh, other kinds of kinds of centers of leadership would borrow from from wealthy lenders, from the aristocracy, to fund uh, the state. And so, uh, we're we're very entrenched in debt relationships uh, in the modern world. And and uh, you know, we I want to believe that it's possible, but it's a dramatic uh, reimagining of what not just what economics looks like, but what politics and society looks like. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned the um, like religious component of debt. And so my question is, are certain religions more susceptible to this concept of debt and debt cancellation? And if so, why are certain religions more likely to mention this concept? I'd say that we see talk of, you know, we see, we, we see varying approaches and ways of thinking and talking about debt, economics and exchange in various religions. And um, you know, I'm not an authority on on all religions, and I cer- certainly wouldn't want to give an authoritative judgment comparatively. Um, you know, I would just say that there is a there's a diversity of approaches to thinking about exchange and value and obligation in various religious traditions. The ones that I've been most familiar with, in particular Christianity, but to some extent Judaism and Islam. I mean, part of the reason I think that they spoke about these things was because they emerged in contexts where where debt was a major factor of life. You know, as as I've mentioned, in terms of its emergence on the scene in these ancient Near Eastern empires and regimes, <clears throat> so it was, a, it was a major factor that uh, became uh, a, a metaphor and a way to talk about not just social life but spiritual life. And so these these thinkers and you know theologians and writers of scripture looked out on the world and saw, you know, kings that were perhaps canceling debt or entrapping their subjects in forms of debt or wealthy lenders that were doing the same thing. And it became a metaphor for them to think about, well, what does it mean to be obligated to somebody who's more powerful than me? And so they projected these things upon upon God and the cosmos and talked about believers as somehow in debt to God through their sin and even needing to find a way to pay that off or have that forgiven. So it became a very powerful metaphor. Uh, to the extent in other religious traditions, you know, there there are there are metaphors of exchange and 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 payment and redemption as well. But of course, there are very different histories, very different political situations that are shaping these uh, these particular traditions. Uh, and so, their context the context matters. Those histories matter. Um, I, I know I don't think that there's any tradition that is somehow not susceptible to to these kinds of economic metaphors. I don't think there's any perfect tradition that somehow is free from. Uh, reproducing these kinds of uh, problematic relationships. And I think, you know, all of them have important resources that one can draw on to try to think differently and to, and to shift our imaginations to think differently about how we could structure our economic relationships in more equitable ways. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I just want to say thank you again to Professor Singh for joining me today and taking time to chat with me. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Um, until next time. Mm-hmm. 
This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you will join us for our next episode, and if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.